And uh, he said, man, it's really tough. It's tough to open a practice in a new area as a new graduate. He said, it's going to be really hard. Um, do you have any other options? And I said, well, yeah, actually, um, Reg Wegner, who was my undergrad connection, I, he was actually the first call I made when I moved back to Idaho looking for a job. He didn't have a job. But he said, hey, my wife uh, wants to retire. Would you like to buy her practice in Nampa? I said, Reg, I can't even buy you lunch uh, today. I can't buy a practice. And so I really discounted the idea. But when Gary Garrison said, well, what else is going on? I said, the only thing else I know of is this practice is for sale, but I don't know anything about that. And he said, do you go negotiate the best deal you can negotiate? I'll give you the money. We'll be partners. You'll run the clinic and I'll share in your profits. What? Are you kidding me? What started as a way to get by in a down physical therapy market blossomed into many clinics and many partnerships. Kevin Holsey is our guest on this episode of the Founders Pod. Kevin has an incredible story of building physical therapy clinics and other medical practices. Learn how he did that and many more things regarding partnerships and how to go out on your own. The Founders Podcast. Listen to the stories of how everyday extraordinary people start amazing businesses. Hear how they overcome the odds and find success in the entrepreneurial world. The up and down, the good and the bad, and everything in between. And now, your hosts, Jordan Hansen and Brandon Minard. Hello. Welcome, everybody, to the Founders Pod. I'm Jordan Hansen, and I'm here with my co-host, Brandon Minert. And we have in studio today, we have Kevin Holsey. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. Good morning. So happy to be here. Yeah. Kevin is, I've known Kevin for, it's been four and a half, four and a half years. We go been to church bit, together. Yeah. And not only that, but he's also my backyard neighbor. He's yes. very kind because every time a baseball goes over, he's a, <laughs> he always throws him back. And he's probably had quite a few over there, wiffle balls, baseballs, all of them. It's fun. I appreciate your boys, and I love to get to throw once in a while. So That's right. And actually, you're working with coming. my older son a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Kevin's a good guy. Anyway, Kevin, you are the founder and business development officer of U.S. Healthcare Partners. I got it yes. right? Yes. Got it right. Nailed it. Yeah. And I would love to hear more. Um, today, we're going to learn more about your story. But um, just quickly, could you introduce like more about what business or U.S. Healthcare Partners does? And just help us understand a little bit more about your business. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jordan. U.S. Healthcare Partners uh, was started about three years ago, and we uh, literally partner with healthcare professionals who want to own and operate their own medical practice. We also do healthcare consulting on the side uh, a little bit, and uh, uh, our our practices right now range. Uh, we've got about six, uh, seven now physical therapy practices. We have for mental health locations. So we run that whole gamut from physical therapy to mental mental wellness. We have here in the Valley a couple of family medical clinics. We have a metabolic clinic, a clinic that works with those who um, suffer from obesity-related diseases. Uh, and we have uh, in the state of Washington uh, a couple of other family medical clinics. So 
here in the Valley, we also consult with and help uh, physicians um, with uh, ambulatory surgery centers, which is really a hot business in this Valley. There's a lot of uh, ambulatory surgery centers being opened, and we just uh, helped Everest Surgical Institute open up on Eagle Road, and uh, we're working with the Crawford uh, Surgical Institute, a new one that just opened up on Linder Road. So uh, surgery centers are also a specialty that we have. That sounds like a lot. That sounds busy. It's a lot. Now, what are you doing to help them? Like When you're partnering with them, how are you helping them open up? So if I'm a PT, why would I come to you and say, yeah, I need to work with you? I mean, it's really the, the, the full meal deal uh, when we help out. We not only provide some, some cash, some real equity to help them start their business, but we help them from, from day one uh, getting the funding that they need to, to open and operate their business. We help them find the location. We help them get the equipment. We help them with all of the licensing and the credentialing and the billing and the collecting. We help them hire staff. We train their staff. Uh, we just uh, truly help them uh, as real partners uh, open and operate their medical businesses. So, uh, you know, we have Blake Bingham, who's close to us. Yes. Um, and he is an eye doctor. Yes. But, and I remember he, I think, went through, uh, and it's probably what nor- normal when you open a practice is, is, is like debt financing uh-huh. when you're opening. And now you're, is it different where you're actually buying part of, their, part of their company? And that's where you provide some of the cash. And you also have a lot of connections and a lot of process already in place. Is that kind of the... Yeah, it's uh, Blake Bingham is a, is a mutual friend of ours. And I also found out last night, I was, I was with Blake last night and I was traveling home from Idaho Falls. We have, we've opened up a clinic in Rigby, Idaho and one in Pocatello in the last six weeks. So we were out there, Rigby was having its grand opening and Pocatello was just having its soft opening. So I was out there yesterday and uh, I was telling Blake this story yesterday and he said, uh, oh my gosh, I got a good buddy who's a physical therapist who has a clinic out there. Do you know Cordell Pickering? Yes, that's my partner. We've helped (laughs) Cordell now open up his third clinic. Uh, He said, and Blake told me, oh, my gosh, when I opened my practice a couple of years ago, I called Cordell for tips. And he said, he, he, didn't, he didn't say your name, Kevin Holsey, but he said, I just treat patients. And my partner, Kevin, handles all the business stuff. So you need to talk to him. And I have offered Blake Bingham more than once to have lunch and just talk about his business and his struggles to see if we could help him at all. But he is, uh, I think his practice is doing pretty well now. I think he's pretty happy with where he's at right now. Good. That's awesome. So yeah, we'll get more into that as we go, but yeah. Okay, yeah, definitely. Well, that sounds fascinating. I mean, there's such value in that. Um, oftentimes, medical professionals just focus or just want to focus on the treating of patients and don't really understand or know or know where to start. So that's great. Speaking of starting, where are you? Where did you grow up, Kevin? Or where are you from initially? What was your initially? Background? I'm I'm from Texas. God bless the great uh, nation of Texas, <laughs> and uh, moved to Idaho when I was in fifth grade. My, my mom was raised here, went to high school here, and my dad was stationed at the uh, Mountain Home Military Base when they met. And so um, uh, Jerome is, is, is a home to me, Jerome, Idaho, South Central Idaho. Went to high school there, graduated from there. And, uh, yeah, my parents um, didn't stick around long. When I graduated high school, they moved back to Texas. And so uh, I also call Texas home. Yeah, which part of Texas? Fort Worth. Okay, gotcha. And then was your your father was in the Air My dad Force? was a, an Air Force guy and uh, um, served for four years uh, during the, the Vietnam War era. He never actually got to go to Vietnam. He spent some time in Guam, 
they had uh, Air Force. We we had an Air Force base there, I guess. And he is a helicopter <laughs> guy and uh, grew up in the helicopter world, which is a unique world. Not a pilot, but a mechanic. And so in the Air Force, he was yeah got assigned to to learn to fix helicopters, and uh, that was his career. Um, he was a he was a mechanic, uh, a little bit entrepreneurial. I, I don't know if that's where I got my my entrepreneurial bent, but um, I remember um, he calls them helicopters or fixed wings. So if they're airplanes, he called them fixed wings. And he started a little uh, fixed wing uh, mechanic repair shop in Jerome uh, when I was uh, in high school, and it failed miserably. I remember, I remember my parents being really stressed out about borrowing money and investing, and they had partners, and it just they built the big hangar and they got all the equipment, but I don't think they ever even fixed one plane before it f- kind of fell apart. And, um, that really tainted them on entrepreneurialism. And, uh, my parents were just laborers, workers. My mom did clerical work her whole life. My dad was mechanics. So, uh, really just, just workers. But it so, didn't taint you. It did not. I, I mean, don't know how why. old were you when you were, I mean, did you feel that stress? Did not feel the stress. I, I knew it was going on and I could see it but I wasn't sensitive to it. I was just doing my thing and my parents had that thing going on. And I just remember that it was really cool. Oh, that's my dad's business. And then all of a sudden it wasn't his business anymore. (laughs) And then being really sad about it. Uh, But I like to go to the airport and hang out, but I don't like to fly. And so dad would always, he's a mechanic, but he always had to fly everything to make sure he fixed it right. So he was always wanting us to take us up in these little fixed wing airplanes and these helicopters. And they're not fun to fly in. When it's hot, you know, they don't have air conditioning. It, and I get, I get, uh, I guess, seasick, airsick pretty, pretty easy in those little planes. So it was never fun for me, but we, uh, he always wanted us to, to go out to the airport and fly with him. But it was always uh, a tragedy for me. I did not enjoy that. So then, so he was in the Air Force uh, in Mountain Home, uh-huh. met, your, met your mom, and then they moved out to Texas, and then they moved back, and yeah. you moved to Jerome. And he was out of the Air Force at that point, just working as a yeah, mechanic. Yeah, he, he only sure served a, a four-year stint in the air force when i was really young uh and then my dad uh spent a lot of time chasing helicopter jobs as you can imagine there's just not a lot of helicopter opportunities in this country so we lived in texas we moved to louisiana for about six months we moved back to texas we moved to um, arizona we moved to alaska for a year then we moved to arkansas and then uh I remember very clearly my mom said, we're, I'm tired of chasing helicopter jobs. We're going to go to Jerome, where I grew up, and live near my parents, and you can work wherever you need to, but me and the kids will be in Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad uh, 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 tried to find other jobs, but uh, helicopter mechanic uh, work pays pretty good for, for labor. And so uh, he tried some farming for a while. He tried the small business with fixed wings, but he ended up ultimately just chasing helicopter jobs his whole life. So my wife's from Jerome. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And my, my in-laws live there still. Oh, my god! So not a lot of – I don't know if there's a lot of helicopter demand in rural Idaho, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Magic yeah. Valley area. but There's not, and that's why my dad chased uh, – he worked for a couple of years in Lamoille, Nevada? Have you ever heard of Lamoille? It's the ski resort south of Elko, and it's mostly only helicopter. Mm. And so um, he worked there for probably three years. He worked mostly at the nuclear power site. They have helicopters there for security. They just fly around the perimeter all day long, so they have 
I think he said they have three or four helicopters so that one can just be flying yeah. all the time. And he ended his career in back in Texas uh, working at for Bell Helicopters, which is a pretty popular helicopter manufacturer. And he was an instructor there and uh, spent his last 10 years teaching other mechanics how to fix helicopters. And he would just travel back and forth Texas to Jerome or... No, no, no. They moved. They they moved to Texas oh, at that point. Oh, when you graduated, they did. Yeah, he traveled. Um, he had an apartment in Arco, Idaho, to work at the nuclear power site. So he had a really cool four day on, four day off schedule. So he'd be up there four days and then home four days. And so uh, he traveled that. He probably did that for about ten years. And during this time, when you're seeing this, did you have any indication to say, "Well, I, I want to follow in my father's footsteps. I want to be a laborer," or were they saying, "Son"? get a job, work for a big company, or what advice were they giving you throughout this time? You know, that's, that's a great question. My, my parents uh, uh, were not pro-college. They were, they were uh, I was an athlete, and so I, I, I wanted to go to college because I could continue athletics, and I thought there would be hot girls there. And uh, that's really what I wanted to do was to play some sort of sport and uh, chase girls. And... I had an opportunity to play college basketball and I thought that was pretty fantastic. And my parents were just, uh, neither of them attended college. And so they just were um, completely indifferent to the whole thought process of going to college and what you do and how you pay for it and how you register. And I remember going to register and asking my mom, can you go with me and help me? She said, absolutely not. I don't know anything about that. Um, so when you say they weren't pro-college, it wasn't that they were against it. They just were like, I guess, if yeah. you want to go. Yeah, they were really pro-athletics. They were <laughs> really? really supportive of uh, me and my brothers and our athletic endeavors, uh, indifferent to even even high school education. Hmm. You know, they would look at our report cards, but uh, they never. Uh, we never had discussions about homework or studies or you got to get ready for college or you got to take the SAT or the ACT. There was. Why do you think that is? Just because they had no experience in it. Neither of them went to college, and they just uh, their parents didn't go to college. They didn't have siblings who went to college. Uh, my parents grew up very, very um, – my mom grew up on a homestead in Wyoming. Her, her father was a uh, – my grandpa was a sheep herder, shepherd, literally. They had where did they – where did she grow up? Do you know Wyoming? So my, my mom's – she she grew up in Level, Wyoming, a really tiny town outside of Cody or Powell, okay. and her grandpa was a sheep herder. Oh my gosh! And yeah, and so anyway, so um, they their their ranch was a little bit east of Bill, Wyoming. Bill, Wyoming is about an hour north of uh, of uh, oh geez, the name's Casper. You go okay east of Casper and then north about an hour to Bill, and Bill has a, a post office. That's all they have. And then you go east of Bill, and uh, they had 20,000 acres oh, out there that still exists. We we go out there, and we can still see what's – all that's left is the foundation of the homestead. It's but not – the still name of desolate. the city isn't Matitsi, is it? No, Matitsi, Bill okay. is the closest town, okay. and it is uh, – it is desolate. I mean, you don't see houses for 40 minutes to get to their ranch, and it is, it is still unoccupied. Um, they sold it to Chevron Oil, oil yeah. years ago. Oh, geez, probably in the early 70s. 
my mom had uh, her mom and dad, and then they had eight siblings. And I remember that every year, every kid got a thousand dollar check from Chevron for the rights to try to find oil on these twenty thousand acres, and they never found anything. I know she got those checks for about thirty years, but they couldn't find anything out in that uh, desolate land. So, and so she grew up on a homestead. Yeah, and then somehow made her way to Jerome. Yeah, so her, um, her parents divorced, which was really rare for the, gosh, I don't know, it's maybe the sixties. Mm-hmm. My mom was no, it's early. My mom was born in forty two, and her parents divorced when she was really young, like two or three years old. And her mom married a guy from Jerome. Gotcha. That's how she ended up there. So she grew up there. And so you grew up in a small rural town. Yep. What type of jobs did you have growing up in high school or middle school? Was it working on the farm, <clears throat> moving rocks, moving pipe? Or what, what was your experience? I, I never moved a pipe. I did move some rock. My dad, uh, for a year or two, tried to, to get a job on a farm while he was trying to stop chasing helicopters. So we picked a lot of rock uh, for my the, the company that my dad worked for. Uh, I decided very early that was not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, worst day of my life on a farm. I was a senior in high school and uh, it's still emotional for me. It was just so awful. I mean, it was just absolutely the worst day of my life. Uh, played co- high school football. And after football games on Friday night, you go to the dance and then you make out with your girlfriend all night and then you sleep till noon. That was, that was my, that was, that was my life. Yeah. That was the dream life. I was living it. And my mom, uh, liked us to work on Saturdays. And so she volunteered, uh, my brother and my best friend, uh, the three of us to work on this uh, potato farm. And it was just, just absolutely terrible. And we didn't know what to expect. She just said, you know, you're going to go work today. And I knew the guy. I had dated his daughter. I knew the farmer a little bit. But I, we really just thought this is going to be a couple hours. We're going to go out there and we'll spend a couple hours. Then we'll go home and we'll take a nap. And then we'll go out Saturday night. It was going to be fantastic. So we show up at 6 a.m. The first thing he wants to do is move these uh, pipes off of the potato field so they can harvest the potatoes. So they weren't, there was no water in them at the time. So they were light and dry and we just had to move them off the field. And we thought, oh my gosh, that's awesome. It took about three hours. Oh, we can go home. Oh, this is fantastic. And we're, this is a huge farm and we're out in the boonies. We have no car, no transportation. And we're just looking around. What do we do now? Well, here comes the farmer in his pickup. Great. He's going to take us to, to our cars. We don't even care if he pays us at this point. Let's just go home. So then he drives us over to the spud harvester if you've never worked on one of those, um, the potatoes come through and also a lot of dirt clods, right? These mud balls. So your, your job is to move, take the mud balls out of the potatoes. And it's pretty menial, right? You're just dirt clods. You're just picking them off there. So it's just more raw potatoes going into the, into the trucks. And uh, he said, okay, you're going to do this uh, for a while. No, we are not. We're done. We're ready to go. No, no, your mom said you were here uh, to uh, work and uh, you're going to do this for a while are you kidding me? And, and then we're sort of thinking, okay, let's do this for a couple hours and then he's going to set us free. And we're so hungry and it's about 1030 and we start doing this dirt clods and then it's about two o'clock. We see him coming back in his truck again. Oh yes, he's going he's gonna to set us free. We've been here our eight hours. We can go home. We can eat. We can take a nap. We're going to have fun tonight. He brings us sandwiches and I hate mustard. 
and that's his favorite topping. So he brought us these ham sandwiches with just mustard on them, and I just wanted to throw up. I was so mad. I was so hungry, so thirsty, and I can't eat these sandwiches because I'm anti-mustard, and <laughs> he leaves. And we're like, hey, we're going with you. He said, no, 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 you guys aren't done yet. We got, uh, we got a lot more potatoes to harvest here. No, we don't. We're done. We're, no, just keep going. I'll be back in a little bit. Six o'clock rolls around. Here comes the pickup again. More ham sandwiches with mustard. And they, okay, let's go. Six o'clock, it's quitting time. Nope. He just turned, he dropped off the sandwiches and drove away. And we were picking these dirt clots till 11 o'clock at night. They turn on the lights on these tractors. And it's 11 o'clock at night where he finally comes gets us and takes us back home. And I remember he gave us each $50. Back then, the minimum wage was three twenty-five. That might have covered the hourly rate, but we were so angry yeah. that my mom volunteered for this. So I told her, you will not, I will never do that again. You will never trick me into uh, working a couple hours on Saturday for a, for a farmer. And well, that's, I'm, I'm honestly surprised at terrible. this farmer that he's like, no, you can stay here and yeah. keep working. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, this is like, it was kind of like, he, he reminded me of the Napoleon Dynamite where he brings the the chicken salad sandwiches and the, the egg salad sandwiches Milk. and the egg drinks. And yeah. these kids are just working with this old farmer dude who just doesn't care. And yeah, he d- absolutely did not care and uh, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't listen to our pleas to leave. Yeah. <laughs> he, just, he just drove <laughs> off. Uh, it was terrible. Worst day of my life. And that's when I decided I would not be a farmer for sure. So farmer off the list. Uh, Helicopter mechanic off the list. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I was a newspaper guy. Uh, I think all young kids uh, uh, started delivering newspapers probably in third grade because I I liked money. Lived in Alaska. And I remember Alaska, um, a lot of snow. It's it's true. They do get a lot of snow up there. And I remember that in the wintertime, my routes would be walking through snow tunnels because everybody would shovel their walk and the snow would be six or eight foot high. And I would just walk these snow tunnels, which was terrible because you had to walk the whole path to get the newspaper on the front door. In the summertime, you could just fling them, you know, and get them close. So it took twice as long to do the routes in the wintertime. But Alaska at that time was affluent. It's when the, the gold rush was going on, and they were building the – my dad was up there working on the Alaskan pipeline, and uh, they were using a lot of helicopters to bring materials in and out for that pipeline. And uh, being a, a, a newspaper guy, I remember uh, – Newspapers at that time were a dollar twenty-five a week, and uh, it, when you deliver newspapers, you had to deliver them and collect the money and turn in the money and then get paid. And so I would collect this money, and I had lots of families at that time would tip me twenty dollars in Alaska for delivering their newspapers. So it was uh, it was pretty cool to have a newspaper. Much in better than farming. Yes, much Dirt better than farming. Pick- <laughs> yep, I did uh, lawn mowing uh, for a while. Um, and then my mom uh, did um, clerical work for the school district. She was a bookkeeper for Jerome School District, and she got us hooked up with a janitor job. So we did janitorial stuff in the summertime for the Jerome School District, you know, cleaning floors and cleaning desks and uh, um, scraping boogers off of the underside of desks and bubble gum. And it was a terrible job, but it paid well, and it was better than farming. Better than farming, even though it was labor, it was a lot of variety. You know, your first year you you clean the bottom of desks, and then your second year you get to mow the grass, and then the third year I got to water the grass. That I thought that was really cool. And then actually, my senior year of high school, um, you know, we had a truncated schedule, so we would have basketball practice. I remember was in the morning, and then I'd go to school and get out at one o'clock, and then I was actually the janitor at the middle school. Um, after school every day, my senior year of high school, to try to make money. 
And uh, yeah, I was a janitor. That was now. Did made you some spending money? I mean, did you have any idea? You know, you wanted to go to college for athletics. Yes, but I mean, did you know what you wanted to do? I had no grew? idea. No idea. I had no idea. Like, and, it wasn't uh, even on your mind, or was it on your mind? Not even on my mind. You were just like, I'm probably going to go pro. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't going to go pro. I really had no vision, no goals, no dreams. I was day to day. You know, who's the cutest ladies? girl I can exactly. talk to? Yeah, ladies it was the eighties. I really, absolutely zero um, dreams or vision or goals. I just wanted to, 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 uh, and I, I honestly did not want to go to college for an education. I wanted to go to college to play what ended up to be basketball um, and uh, chase girls. That, that was absolutely it. Were you the first in your family to go to college then, or did yeah. you have siblings that went before you? Or? I had an older brother uh, who was uh, crazy athletic, but um, – Got into drinking and drugs at a really young age and has had just a really troubled life. Um, continues to really struggle with that. With that, So he, he didn't finish high school, but he was a wonder. My, my oldest brother was a, probably the best baseball player of the three of us. I was probably the best basketball player. My little brother uh, played college football. He, he ended up going to, to play college football, and he was a phenomenal athlete. Um, yeah, we did all the sports, football, baseball, basketball, tennis, track. We did all the kind of basic high school sports in Idaho. Where did you go to college? College is Southern Idaho in Twin okay. Falls. I played for two years there and then two years at the College of Idaho in Caldwell. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And what did you end up studying? I, I majored in exercise <laughs> science. Um, I, I, I took a myriad of classes at, at College of Southern Idaho. Um, I got what what equates to a liberal arts degree from a community college, which means you got enough credits, but it doesn't really equate to anything. So <laughs> we'll just tell uh, they they call it an associate of arts degree, um, which is not helpful for anything. But it did um, I did get into the College of Idaho, which is a pretty uh, rigorous academic <coughs> school. Uh, again, I did not go there for the rigorous academic challenges. I went there to uh, play basketball, and uh, probably my my first year there, um, Reg Wegner was his name. He's 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 passed, but he was a physical therapist in Caldwell, who was also a a booster for the basketball program. And we just got to be buddies. And uh, I thought what he did was pretty cool. And he invited me to his clinic in Caldwell to uh, for my senior internship. And I just I just really thought, well, this could be pretty cool. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what else I'm going to do. Maybe physical therapies for me, and so a pre-physical therapy degree is is an exercise science degree. So I, I ended up with an exercise science degree and, and did end up going to physical therapy school. Um, I went to Mount St. Mary's College, in um, California, in Westwood, uh, California, and then I went to Idaho State University to get my doctorate degree in physical therapy. Wow. Uh, I mean, was you've kind of glossed over academics altogether. You weren't interested. Um, then you went to College of Idaho. Like you said, it's not an easy school academically. Was it difficult for you, or do you feel like it still wasn't? It was horribly difficult. Horribly difficult. Yeah, it was It was terrible. And if it wasn't for uh, some very – College of Idaho is, is – uh, it's hard to get into. Um, not impossible. Um, but they take pity, you know, if, if you have some talents. And it's not just athletics. If you have music talent or – science talent or, you know, uh, any sort of talent you can get into the College of Idaho. Um, it's not purely based on academics um, to get into the College of Idaho. But 
it's also really hard to, to, to be the valedictorian at College of Idaho. But it's also really, really hard to fail at the College of Idaho. Nobody wants to see you fail. So the professors work really hard to, to keep you moving along. So I was really blessed that I had a lot of wonderful professors who did not want me to fail. And um, yeah, I did, was not valedictorian. <laughs> <laughs> but I also did not fail. Um, now, would you, I mean, I know you're still involved at the College of Idaho. A trustee, yeah. I think you said. I, yeah, I, I finished my term as a trustee about a year ago. So you've been very involved at the College of Idaho. So do you look back on that time of your life like as a, a, a boon, really? Like a- it, was, it, was, it was a launching uh, pad f- for sure. Um, it, it got me to physical therapy school. And physical therapy school uh, launched my entrepreneurialism. I, I, uh, so in between the College of Idaho and actually getting into physical therapy school, there was a six-year gap because I wasn't, my grades weren't good. And so it's hard to get into a competitive graduate school when you um, have terrible grades. And so I had to, I took a lot of classes over to try to improve my GPA and to, to become more qualified for the entrance exams. And so that, that took me a while. So I worked as a physical therapist assistant for some really cool physical therapy companies in California. And that kind of sparked the entrepreneurialism that I'm going to have my own clinic. I'm going to um, be a great physical therapist. I'm going to be a business owner. I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to call the shots and that's going to be my life. And uh, uh, the guy that I worked for that I most admired um, gave me a little bit more responsibility probably than, than I deserved. But he, he told me one day he had these really weird clocks. Physical therapy is a lot of timing you know, do this for five minutes, do this for 10 minutes, do this for 30 seconds. And so he had these really funky mechanical clocks that were just weird. And they broke a lot because they were old, they were clunky and mechanical and they would fall on the floor all the time. They would break. And he told me one time, give me six more of those clocks. And this is uh, in the late eighties, early nineties. And the internet was not in existence. So you really had to get on the phone and look at catalogs and talk to guys. And even for these dumb little clocks, these things were $70 a piece. In 1990, they were $70, and they were dumb. And I, I said, oh, my gosh, Dave, you can get these cool little digital timers, and they're $3, and I think we should, we should transition to these. He said, no, I, I like those mechanical clocks. Go ahead and order me six of those. Dave, they're $70 a piece. I, okay, I didn't ask you how much they cost. And I said, yeah, but that's a lot of money. He said, you know what? When you have your clinic, you can make the decisions. <laughs> And you can decide what kind of clocks you want. This is my business. I make the decisions. I want those $70 clocks. And the alarms just went off in my head. Oh, my gosh, it would be so cool to be the boss, to be able to buy $70 clocks if you wanted to <laughs> and just tell people like me to buy what you want. So I, that really, that moment was sort of, oh, my gosh, I, uh, I think I want to be a boss and own a clinic. And uh, it was not a dramatic moment. I mean, the heavens didn't open up and, Angels didn't sing, but it was for me, that was kind of a pivotal moment that, man, being the boss and owning your own place would be really cool. Well, your road, it sounds like the road to get there, you went to physical therapy school six years mm-hmm. after graduating. Yes. And then you, you got your doctorate. Yes. And so what was your family life at the time that you had been going to physical therapy school? Were you married or were you, did you have a family in California? Yeah, had had uh, we moved to California, my my first wife uh, wanted to be an entertainer. She was a singer, actor, model, 
and California is where you got to be. And so we moved there so she could work on her career. And so I, uh, all the classes that I took to try to improve my grade point average, I went to nine different colleges in California trying to get the classes I needed to improve my GPA enough to, to get into graduate school. And, um, my son was, when I finally got into school, my son was two or three years old. And uh, my daughter was born uh, about six months before graduation. It's a, it was a two and a half year program initially. So we had my son and my daughter and my, my wife. Uh, this was, it was a rough uh, two and a half years. Um, my, my wife was in the profession, but didn't really work a lot. And so I, I went to school full time in a program, right? It's not like regular college. When you're in a graduate program, they tell you what class you're going to take and what time you're going to be there. And so you don't have a lot of flexibility. So I worked as a physical therapist assistant while I was in physical therapy school. So I was in school, you know, a pretty traditional 16, 18 hour load. And I worked 30 to 40 hours a week. Um, while I was also trying to study well enough to, to graduate from this disaggressive program. So it was a, it was a rough couple of years. And providing for your family. Yes, I had to provide. Now, I mean, that sounds hard. It was and terrible. You had to redo a bunch of classes. Yep. Now, where did this determination come from? Um, I, I don't know if it was determination or just desperation. You think it really was that? Yeah, I, I don't know what else to do. Um, I'm working as a... As a physical therapist assistant, making $13 an hour, living in Los Angeles, trying to support my wife and kids. And I just knew I needed more, uh, needed more money. And I really thought the path to, um, you know, providing for my family required me to get a higher paying job. And so it was, uh, it was, yeah, I think desperation. Now, did you, I mean, you're telling us this all very calmly. Yeah. I mean, during this time, did you feel really stressed? I, I don't carry a, a high stress load. Uh, I was actually, you know, Jordan, I was into Bishopric at the same time. Okay. In, really? our, in, okay. Our, in the Hollywood, we lived in Hollywood, which was a really cool place to live. And I, I don't normally carry a lot of stress or anxiety. Um, so, so it was, you just, you just did it. You know, my, my friends would always, my friends in graduate school, you know, while they were heading to the pool to study, you know, I said, well, I got to go to work. And they said, how do you do it? I said, they well, didn't have families probably. Yeah, they didn't have families. Yeah. You know, they were all kids and. I said, well, while you're laying around the pool, I'm working. You're not studying. We're not really studying at the pool. <laughs> We're probably both studying the same amount of time. Just while you're laying around, I'm, I'm going to work. So it was a really tough um, two and a half years to get through that program. Now, why doc- no, a doctor? You don't re- it's not required. A doctor, it's not required. It's, it's not required, um, but it is now uh, entry level. So there was a progression where physical therapy, um, when I was first interested in physical therapy, you only had to have a bachelor's degree. You still had to get into a gra- a program. You had to be accepted into a competitive program, but you graduated with a master with a with a, a bachelor's degree. When I was um, seeking to get into physical therapy school, most of them had transitioned to a master's um, degree. And uh, while I was actually in physical therapy school, there were only three program programs in the country that were offering doctorates. Um, but now they're all entry-level doctorates. You can't get a master's degree anymore. Um, that transition was about 10 years ago. And when I was more closely working in the, in the physical therapy space, uh, I just didn't want, it was an ego thing. I didn't want these new young kids to have a higher degree than I had. So I wanted to sort of, you know, keep up with the Joneses. And if all these kids have this degree, I should also have this degree. So 
that was purely ego. But worth it? Um, uh, worth it is cool. You know, uh, <laughs> you know hey, I have a doctorate degree. And, and yeah, call me doctor. And, and that's, uh, that, that's just something cool about that. There's absolutely no uh, monetary value <laughs> to the degree. It doesn't really, in the profession, it doesn't matter if you're, you've been doing it 40 years and you have a bachelor's degree or you're my age and you have a master's degree or you're a new young whipper, whippersnapper with a doctorate degree. It's medicine. Medicine pays what it pays. And, and you can't, you can't just charge more because you want to make more because you get into these contracts with these payers. And so you're really limited um, on what you can be paid in medicine. And so physical therapists don't get paid more for having higher degrees. Consequently, you don't also get paid a lot more for having a lot of experience. I mean, it's a pretty flat profession. Hence why I haven't seen a patient in 19 years. I realized right away that that was also not for me, that there was not enough money uh, to be made as a physical therapist for me. Um, so I, I only practice physical therapy. I got my master's degree, practiced for two years, and then decided I would rather be an entrepreneur than uh, be a physical therapist. And so throughout all this time, you know, you're six years out of college, you're getting into physical therapy school, <clears throat> having to retake classes. Was there any lost patience by your, your spouse or your family saying, hey, what are we going to do? Like, where's the direction we're going? Or you know, no, our, our parents were pretty indifferent as well. And they just thought, you know, hey, you're working, you want to go to school, great, um, good luck. Um, the, we were living in L.A., they didn't care. They, I think they thought I was making a ton of money. I worked a lot of hours. I had five jobs. Um, at one point, I was, I was working as a physical therapist assistant. I got a job on the weekend painting offices. Um, I also had a job back then um, working for an insurance agent, taking pictures of cars and properties that he wanted to insure just to kind of verify that, yes, that actually exists. So I, I would run around and, and uh, take pictures for him. I worked at Big Five Sporting Goods uh, a couple of nights a week, so really kind of funded my, my sports hobbies. I uh, never really got a paycheck. I always took it out in trade for sporting goods, but worked a lot of jobs back then to uh, try to try to provide. And uh, our parents were, were oblivious, I think. You just didn't talk about that stuff. What about your wife? She was uh, she desperately wanted to be an, an actor and was willing to allow me to sacrifice as much as I needed. <laughs> to, to allow uh, she was her willing to, to do that. She was willing. Yeah, she was very willing uh, to allow me to sacrifice that way. That's interesting. Um, and then so two years practicing. Did, uh -huh. you, did you come out of Idaho State and then start your own clinic or did you? Jump on yeah. with somebody else? Yeah, right away. When I graduated, um, uh, it, this is oblivious to a lot of people, but in 1997, the government really um, produced uh, uh, the, the Balanced Budget Act, 1997. And to balance the budget, um, one of the things that got really cut back on was physical therapy for Medicare recipients. And um, when I graduated, it was in that perfect storm when that when that act was passed and physical therapy jobs just disappeared across the country. So I graduated, couldn't find a job. And I considered myself very employable and uh, could not find a job. And I would have gone anywhere in the country for a job. I was offered a really cool job in Texas. Um, my, my final internship uh, in physical therapy schools with the Texas Rangers in, in Dallas and uh, clinic was actually inside the ballpark the stadium where they played and we got to treat not just texas rangers and 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 but we treated several professional athletes and it was also just open to the to the community and they offered me a job but my w wife at that time did not want to live in texas 
So that was the only job offer I had, and, and uh, she didn't want me to take it. So we moved to Idaho. We lived with her parents for about six months, and they were really fantastic. They let us uh, um, live in their home and eat their food. And, and uh, it, took me, it took me six months uh, to find my first job. And this whole time, I'm thinking, if I can't, can't find a job, I should make a job. Maybe I just need to open my own clinic now. And, and see what happens. And my mentor, Gary Garrison, was from Jerome, and he was a physical therapist. He was kind of, we were, we were really progressive. I mean, he was a dad who was a physical therapist who was donating his time to our sports programs in high school. So not a lot of high schools had team physical therapists, but we had Gary Garrison. And so he was, he was a friend and a mentor, and I called him up and said, hey, I'm I'm graduated. I can't find a job. I'm thinking I'm going to open up a practice. I think I've got some ideas. Can you, can you coach me up? Can you help me out? And uh, he said, man, it's really tough. It's tough to open a practice in a new area as a new graduate. I said, he said, it's going to be really hard. Um, do you have any other options? And I said, well, yeah, actually, um, Reg Wegner, who was my undergrad connection, I he was actually the first call I made when I moved back to Idaho looking for a job. He didn't have a job, but he said, hey, my wife uh, wants to retire. Would you like to buy her practice in Nampa? I said, Reg, I can't even buy you lunch uh, today. I can't buy a practice. And so I really discounted the idea. But when Gary Garrison, a friend and, and really an angel, um, said, well, what else is going on? I said, the only thing else I know of is this practice is for sale, but I don't know anything about that. And he said, he said, you go negotiate the best deal you can negotiate. I'll give you the money. We'll be partners. You'll run the clinic, and I'll share in your profits. What? Are you kidding me? And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, he was truly an angel in, in, investor. And uh, he promised to mentor me and train me and develop me and help me, show me the ropes. He had had several successful physical therapy businesses over the course of his career. And uh, I still didn't know anything about running a business. I've, I was really confident that I could treat patients. But my father-in-law, my ex-father-in-law, uh, just retired and sold his uh, pest control company and was looking for something to do. So I also approached him. Hey, would you invest a little money and would you run the business? Whatever that means. Let me treat patients and you run the business. And uh, he bought into that as well. So I had my father-in-law as, as an initial investor and business support. And then I had Gary Garrison, who ended up truly just being an investor. He, he, he never even visited the clinic. Um, but he, he donated. He was very quick to write out a $250,000 check uh, for me to open up my first business. And that is, that is rare. Um, I, w I paid him back in five years. Wow. Got him back his money and bought him out after five years. But he was uh, truly fantastic in taking a chance on me and um, investing that much money in me. And uh, my father-in-law is the same. He invested a lot of money and time and energy. And mostly what he did was the billing and collecting. And medical billing and collecting is a horrible business. Uh, but he really dug in at the age of, gosh, he was 65 to 70 at the time. And he just dug in and worked really hard at that for about five years before he ultimately retired. But I was really blessed to have two uh, great men who were willing to support me at that time. Now, why, what, uh, who were you then? Why would they, why did they have that faith in you to think that, you know what? I think I'm $250,000 done. I don't know. That's really weird, isn't it? I, uh, 
I look back on that. And I, I don't know why. I, I just, there are blessings that you receive and people are placed in your life for, for different reasons. And I, I really don't know why he would do that. Um, but it was, it was phenomenal. And, um, that, that action in that initial partnership, uh, truly led to my desire to be entrepreneurial, philanthropic, and to create these opportunities for other, at the time, just physical therapists, but now all healthcare providers. So I'm a team sports guy. So working in teams, having partnerships, um, was always, um, important to me. Uh, I've probably been in about 80 different business partnerships and hundred percent of everything I've ever done has been in a, in a partnership. And so, um, partnering with Gary Garrison and, and my father-in-law, uh, Orville Malden from the beginning there really, I think kind of sparked this whole idea of this business model to partner with and help support those who, uh, want their own place. So you said two years practicing and then, well, I mean, you had the practice for more than then because you said you paid him back after five years. So obviously that practice was still working in Nampa. So you moved to Nampa. Yep. You started practicing for two years. How did that transition from you seeing patients you not seeing patients. Yeah, that was, uh, uh, again, having no business experience. Uh, I, I got a degree from the College of Idaho in exercise science. I got a physical therapy degree, but then I partnered with Gary Garrison and Orville Malden, who are going to help show me how to run a business. And uh, turned out Gary Garrison was not available and didn't really know a lot about business anyway, I don't think. And my, my, my father-in-law, who was going to run the business, truly didn't know a lot about business either. Really good accountant, really good bookkeeper, got really good at the billing and collecting, but really oblivious to, to everything else. So I start reading books and I hire some consultants to help teach me what I needed to do to actually grow the business. And uh, they challenged me really early. They said, you need to um, stop seeing patients and learn how to run a business and actually grow this business or you hire somebody to grow this business so you can treat patients. And it took me a millisecond to decide, I don't want to treat patients. I want to learn how to run this business. So I, I, uh, I had partners. At, at the time, I had four clinics. And uh, I told my partners, I said, I'm going to stop seeing patients and I'm going to um, just run the business. And it's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be awesome. I made the most money. I also made the most money. I, I, my, check, my, my personal paychecks were the biggest. And I brought the most revenue into the business because my practice was the largest. So it was a really tough sell to these four guys. So I had this, I'd already started this partnership um, path. Uh, while I was seeing patients, I was approached uh, I was seeing patients in Nampa and I was approached by a physician in Homedale to open up a physical therapy practice within his medical practice. And awesome. Let's do that. Let's figure that out. But I knew I, I knew I didn't know enough about business to, to really make that happen. But I thought if I had a partner in Homedale who truly had a vested interest in the success, he could run that clinic. I can run this clinic and we can share ideas and talk through it. So I found an amazing partner in Homedale, and he ran that clinic for several years. And then the same thing happened in Eagle. I had a, a guy approach me, hey, I hear you're helping guys open clinics. Can you help me? Um, okay. And this is just the third clinic. You're that like, was the well, third. I've, I've done it once. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's, that's what I told my guy from Eagle. He said, you're pretty good at this. I said, I have one in Nampa that's going really well. This one in Homedale is brand new. I don't know if it works, but 
you know, if you want to do this together, I'll muddle through it with you and we can try to figure it out. And before his clinic even really gets up and going, we got another opportunity in CUNA. Another physician said, hey, you guys should have a clinic in CUNA. Yeah, we should. We should do that. And so we had four clinics within a couple of years and none of them doing, my clinic was doing well. The other three were so brand new, they weren't doing great. And that's when the consultant said, somebody's got to drive this ship. So uh, what, what year is this? This was, uh, yeah, was this 91 and 92. Okay, because Eagle in 91 or 92 and CUNA and... Those are small. Those are small. Small. Little farming communities. Yeah. Uh, good times to get started. <laughs> good times to smart to start a business. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was uh, I guess it's it's all kind of relative, right? I mean, the, yeah. there are less, less commas and decimal points, but the same kind of principles uh, still apply. So it was hard, but but um, we just did it. And it, after two years, I just decided I would rather um, learn how to run this business than treat patients. And uh, it, it just kind of catapulted from there. We ended up opening. I had a company called Rehab Authority, which still exists here in town. Yeah. We uh, I opened up 38 um, locations. Um, and I sold it, I sold completely out, uh, three and a half years ago, um, to a company based out of California. And so now they, they own the company, but we sold 17 locations to them in, uh, 2018, summer of 2018. So, um, I guess it's almost four years now. So, wow. We, uh, we had, we had a pretty good, uh, medium sized business and, uh, we were doing pretty well. We had, um, clinics in, in Idaho, North Dakota, Minnesota, so it's it started with so you had those four clinics, and then from ninety one until two thousand eighteen, you continued to add, and it developed into Rehab Authority. Or how, what? What was it that? Was, it was uh, Rehab Authority from the beginning. Okay, that was, so that was the name. Those four clinics, each one opened up under the name Rehab Authority. Uh huh. Okay, and then from there, you guys just grew it as much as you. Yeah, could. yeah. We opened up thirty eight total locations. They weren't all Rehab Authorities. Uh, we owned one here in town called Modern Rehab. Um, we had one uh, over by St. Luke's called the Idaho Arthritis Center. We had one in Fruland that was called Therapy Solution. So um, not everybody wanted to be a rehab authority. We tried to make it um, medicine that was sort of franchise-esque, kind of like a primary health where every the buildings were unique and you know you had the same look and feel and smell and taste whenever you walked into a location. And a lot of clinicians don't like that kind of franchise, cookie-cutter sort of model. So... We did help some guys open some clinics under, under some other brands. Um, and, and a lot of guys, I would help them get started, and then they would buy me out. Um, they um, decided that they could do it better, smarter, faster. Um, uh, an example here in town is Wright Physical Therapy. Brian Wright, we helped him open a clinic in Twin Falls, which is where he's originally from. And he bought us out after a few years, and now he's got 16 locations um, in Idaho, and he runs a really good company. So there's a lot of of buying and selling and and some closures we we ended up closing six clinics that just uh couldn't go well they're not all home runs um so yeah we ended up opening 38 clinics finally sold 17 what um, about the rest uh it, they were they were bought or sold or closed uh, along the way so you ended up selling 17 yep um now what would make me come to you as a physical therapist? More just like I need your experience, funding, all that stuff is huge advantages for me. If I'm a physical therapist, why would I want to partner with you? Um, you would want to partner with me because you don't know anything about running a business. Yeah. That, that's absolutely it. I don't know how to get a loan. I don't know what kind of loan. I've never negotiated a lease. 
I don't know where to buy equipment. I don't know how to hire anybody. I don't know how to do any billing and collecting. I don't know how to become contracted and credentialed with insurance companies. Um, there's, there's a lot of moving parts to open a business. There are more moving parts to open up a medical practice. And uh, uh, they, they just absolutely have no idea. So I can treat what people really well, but I don't want to do the rest of it. And that's really where you, you come in. That's the huge value add. That's, that's the value add. And uh, it's, it's uh, it, most people go to any sort of medical profession to, to treat patients. That's, that's, that's why you entered that profession. There aren't that many that are truly entrepreneurial. There are a lot that want to be the boss and be the smartest in the room and own things and make the decisions. But most of them don't have any idea about how to actually run the business and what goes on behind the scenes. By the, by the $70 clocks. Yes, they, they want to buy their seventy dollars clocks. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, you know, you went from ninety one to having those four clinics to selling in two thousand eighteen in just a few sentences. But were there many highs and lows throughout the time? Was there ever a time where you thought, "Oh gosh, this was this isn't going the way I wanted it to," or "This wasn't what I was envisioning," or was it all roses and sunshine the whole time? It was not roses and sunshine the whole time, but I think because I, I just am, am blessed with low stress and low anxiety, I never really gave it a lot of thought. I, again, no goals, no benchmarks, no, no I got to make this much money. I, I, there was never a number of clinics I had to have. There was never a number of dollars I needed to make. It was just fun um, putting this together. And, uh, there, there were certainly lows. There were exactly five missed paychecks <laughs> in those 19 years, which was, uh, those are terrible. I mean, when you're, when you say missed paycheck, that means you can't pay your people or you're saying you didn't, I didn't get a paycheck. Didn't a paycheck. Uh, we never, we never missed a payroll to our employees, but we missed paychecks to the owners. Um, it, and that's hard to go home and tell your wife, Hey, you know, we're not, we're not going to get paid. And, uh, so, so it, the, the home finances struggled a few times, but it, it felt like um, the more people I helped and the more um, altruistic I felt about what I was doing, the more money I would make personally. And it was pretty cool. I'm not, I, I was never greedy. I never wanted to make millions of dollars. Um, I just really liked um, helping and, and really took great pride in, in having my partners succeed um, probably the most prideful moment uh, I, I, I had as a partner was watching them reach their goals. A lot of people have goals and, and aspirations. And uh, one of my very first partners who helped me open the CUNA clinic years ago, when I met him, he had a terrible car when I met him. It was a Toyota Tercel. And he was, he's so squeaky tight with his money. It, was, it didn't have a radio. It didn't have air conditioning. Even back then, most cars had automatic windows. He had the hand cranks. It was a five-speed I mean, he got the lowest low of the low of the Toyota Tercels that you could buy, and it had like 280,000 miles on it. And when he bought a BMW uh, for the first time brand new, I, it's a material item, but it was important to him and that uh, I helped him open a business that allowed him to, to buy the car that he wanted and to move from his you know three-bedroom, two-bath starter home in CUNA to a big, beautiful home in North Meridian, uh, it, I really took great um, satisfaction in, in watching them succeed and get what they wanted out of the partnership. Did you ever have, have an existential crisis time frame? Like, or was there ever a moment where you thought, okay, this may all go south? 
No. Um, but my partners talked about that a lot. A lot of what ifs. What ifs. I said, well, if it gets to that point and we have to start shaving, I'm, I'm last guy standing. <laughs> so, you know, if we have to, you know, uh, we did close clinics. Some failed. We sold some. And, and so there was a lot of a lot of ups and downs. But um, I always just felt like, um, you know, people figure stuff out. We'll figure it out as it comes along. There were there were a lot of, of uh, turning points. Um, but I, I never felt that there was impending doom uh, to any of the business decisions. There's, it's just business. I don't um, put a lot of emotion in it. A lot of people talk about the blood and the sweat and the tears over their businesses. I, I, I don't know if I've ever bled or, or cried over any of the business. It's a lot of sweat, but not emotionally, emotionally invested at all. Um, and and not, not to be callous about it because I really care about my partners and the employees and I want them to do well and everybody make a lot of money and everybody win. But um, yeah, I, I never cried. Uh, over anything that happened in any of our businesses. That's interesting. Um, now, why did you sell then? I wanted to. Uh, uh, I wanted to be bigger, right? So we'd open all these clinics, and we were doing pretty good. We were all making pretty good money. Um, pretty good money by physical therapy standards. I mean, I was never uh, Bill Gates uh, or Elon Musk, but we were making really good uh, physical therapy money, and. Um, I just wanted more, you know, what's the next step? I, I had been doing this for, um, it was in 2013. So we'd been open for about 13 years and what's next? How do I take this from 17 locations to a hundred, 200? I, I didn't have that knowledge and I didn't know how to take that next step. So I just gathered all the partners together and I said, Hey, maybe we need to, to roll this thing up. Maybe we need to sell or partner with a larger company to show me how to really explode this thing. Cause I really don't know how to take it from medium to, to awesome. And so we, we found that partner and we sold them a majority interest in 2014, hoping they would show us the path to, uh, to greatness. And it just did not work out. Um, everything horrible about partnering with and selling to large corporations happened to us and uh, it just never worked out. And so uh, we sold them another big chunk of the company in 2016. And then I finally just completely sold out in 2018. Like I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. But no non-compete because you're, you're, the business you have now is kind of the same thing, right? It's definitely non-compete. Okay. That's why I don't have any physical therapy clinics in Boise. Oh, okay. Yet. Gotcha. The non-compete expires next year at this time. <laughs> and then maybe and we will, will change. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have some physical therapy clinics. So, um, the first clinic that I opened after I sold out completely was in Rexburg, which was uh, 26.3 miles from a previous <laughs> clinic in Rexburg. So I had a 25, a 25 mile radius in my non-compete from any clinic that I opened in Idaho. And uh, so uh, the first one was in Rexburg. It, not, not necessarily um, purposeful, but we'd been working for Rehab Authority. I was working on this guy in this location for Rexburg. And uh, once I left that other company, he said, yes, if you're not with them anymore, I'll, I'll do this with you in Rexburg. And that's Cordell Pickering, who's friends with Blake Bingham, and uh, we made that happen. Hmm. What, was your, what was your intent when you sold? Do you say, I wanted to retire for good and leave and, you know, play pickleball the rest of my life? Or what was your oh, intent? Oh, absolutely not. I, I, again, we didn't own Apple Computer. We owned physical therapy, and it's, it's not um, – 
physical therapy is a is a volume game. There's not a lot of money to be made per patient encounter. You really got to see a lot of encounters uh, in a lot of locations to make a lot of money in physical therapy. It's a big industry. There are um, there are probably 20 companies in the country that have more than 200 physical therapy locations. So you've really you really got to do a lot of volume uh, in physical therapy. And we sold a chunk. That first chunk we sold in 2014 just kind of got us right financially, paid off some debt. We had made some real estate investments. And so it just kind of, that first paycheck just kind of got us right. Second paycheck for me in 2016 mostly went to my ex-wife. I got divorced at that time. And then the third check, um, which was the biggest of all the checks, but that third check also half went to my ex-wife. Uh, and the remainder went to starting the new company, which was U.S. Healthcare Partners kind of just starting over again. And you're using it mostly to help finance these companies when they're starting. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So we invested, uh, we're invested in uh, 13 locations today and consult with another handful without having an equity stake. And you had the idea for your current business as you were leaving or exiting rehab authority. And so it was always at the time of the sale in 2018 to start and continue forward with yeah, so so um, my my unhappiness with you know my new partners, uh, you know, didn't it started almost instantly <laughs> in 2014, and so um, gosh, probably middle of 2017, I was forming my exit strategy and in the what next. I knew there was a non compete, so what am I going to do? I could move and start a physical therapy company, you know, somewhere else. Um, but then I had an amazing experience. Um, with a nurse practitioner here in town, while we own nurse, while we own rehab authority, we did a little bit of consulting and we helped, uh, Brookney Boron open Boron family medicine, uh, in Meridian and it still exists. And she's a wonderful clinician. And, um, uh, we helped her for about her first six months of getting her up and going. And then she kind of took it over and dismissed us. And, um, I then went there for a medical experience about this time. She was also became my family provider and, I went in there and we were just kind of talking about our business and I'm just looking around thinking, Oh my gosh, there are um, so many people uh, wanting to help physicians open up businesses. There are a lot of people, tons of people wanting to help physical therapists open up clinics, but there, there weren't at that time, a lot of people wanting to help nurse practitioners and physician assistants open up practices. So I saw a need there. Wow. What if I could do for nurse practitioners, what I do for um, physical therapists and I actually talked uh, intently with Brookney about partnering in this endeavor. And uh, we ultimately didn't end up partnering, but it, it spurred the idea um, to, to expand our, our reach to include nurse practitioners. And, and now we have nurse practitioners and we have PAs and we have physicians. It's, it's, it's grown a lot bigger. But my initial vision was to just help nurse practitioners open up uh, family medical clinics. I thought that would be really cool. Because then no non-compete either, right? You know, and it doesn't violate the non-compete. I was only limited uh, to physical therapy clinics. So I could still stay in medicine. I could still help, uh, I believe, an, an underserved uh, community in the in the medical space and uh, kind of just duplicate what I'd done for 20 years for physical therapy. What I think is great about your company is, I guess, from a, from my standpoint, who knows very little about the medical industry and the organization and everything is that we saw at least in Boise a, a large consolidation of doctors and uh, medical 
practices into the two main health providers in town, the St. Luke's and St. Al's. Yes. <clears throat> and as a patient, you could see the frustrations that come along with, you know, working, having the doctors that work in their systems. And so it was always my thought, you know, there's going to be a big swing back the other way where many doctors and independent practitioners are going to open up their own clinics so that they can control their own experience of the patients and the billing and the different experience that the patient has. And I've talked to a few people that have started that, and I, I, cel- I love that. I celebrate that 100% because I see such a value in the doctor controlling, you know, the front to end and not just clocking in and seeing the people that St. Luke's tells them to see and, and not getting involved in anything else. And so I think it's so great that, you know, you're involved in helping these people maybe leave St. Luke's or St. Al's yep. and starting their own clinics and providing an incredible service to yeah, the Valley. And a- so. Absolutely. O- Obamacare um, scared physicians to death. And those who were in ind- independent practice sold out to St. Luke's and St. Al's. And most of them had five and 10 year employment agreements. And um, we're sort of hoping that those we're kind of at that 10 year mark that a lot more of them will flood back out of the hospital into independent practice, but it is scary. It's, it's, it's no less scary for a surgeon than it is for a plumber to, to decide to open up your own business. There is risk and there's investment and there's stress and there's late nights and there's early mornings and there's missed dates and there's missed, um, child activities. Um, that's, that's all very real part of whatever business you want to open. And surgeons are, and physicians and nurse practitioners, PAs are not immune to those, to those stressors. So you, you have to be really good at your craft of, of being a medical professional, but you also have to have the desire. Um, and even if it's just ego, I want to have my own place. And I want to be the boss. I want to hire somebody to do all this other stuff. It's still risk and, and, and it's investment. And it's, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a small percentage of the community that is really, truly risk tolerant and, and, and willing to make the risks and sacrifices necessary to have your own business. So I don't know what that number is, but they're, they're out there. Um, the entrepreneurs are there. Um, but it's uh, um, a lot of people have entrepreneurial ideas, but you really have to be, I believe, risk tolerant to be to really open up your own your own business, um, regardless of what industry you might be in. It's it's tough. And then where do you see your business from now going forward? What are your plans? Do you want to bring your children into the fold? Do you want to sell it off and ride off into the sunset? Do you want to keep working until... 200 locations. Up? He said 200 locations. Is that what it is? Okay. <laughs> Cordell Pickering, uh, my great partner in, in uh, Eastern Idaho, he wants uh, 2,000 physical therapy locations. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Which has been done. Uh, there's a lot of companies. Uh, I don't know if you remember Health South. They were a huge healthcare conglomerate that got caught up in the whole... Uh, financial scams uh, of about 15 years ago with Enron and uh, all of these things. They they got they had almost 3,000 clinics at one time. There are probably three companies now that have more than 2,000 locations. Um, uh, again, no goals, no exit strategies. Um, I don't have I don't have aspirations to to retire. Um, I like what I do and it's easy and it's flexible and. I get a lot of free time when I want it. Um, so, so I really don't need more free time. Uh, I really like what I do. I like helping and I like being involved. Um, we really feel like um, we've kind of decided we're not going to really open up a lot more family medicine. 
family medicine is really tough. The margins are really low, and it's it's tough to compete against primary health in this area. We really like mental health, and we really like physical therapy. They're both uh, very similar in their business operations, and they're both uh, can be very profitable. We feel like mental health um, is is in high demand right now. A lot of it's because of societal's um, tolerance and willingness to talk about mental health disease, and people are much more willing to get help uh, for for mental health um, frustrations. And so we we're putting a lot of our eggs in the mental health basket right now. And um, our idea is to really kind of grow our mental health uh, Meridian Advanced Psychiatry Map for short. We'll try to grow Map into a two, 300 clinic company in the next 10, 15 years. Now, does that mean like counselors? Like you're going to psychiatrists, counselors, is it more like, like people dealing with addiction? They have a clinic, they're going to check in. Like what? Uh, uh, yes to all those except the check in part. We don't, we're outpatient. Okay. Uh, we're not going to do, uh, so far we haven't talked about doing any inpatient um, hospital stays. Psychiatry is mostly about um, diagnosing and prescribing. Um, psychology is more about, you know, talk therapy, you know, lay on the couch and tell me about your mom kind of therapy. So we do a little bit of both. We're mostly psychiatry. Uh, we currently have four locations in the Valley and we have um, nine, I call them the, the prescribers <laughs> and, and the therapists. And so we have only three therapists and uh, um, the diagnosing and the prescribing is really um, in a, from a business model is, is what we want to do. The, the psychology, the talk therapy is important and needed and vital, um, but, but less interesting from a business perspective. And, uh, yeah, we just feel like the, the, the mental health is, is there. And, and the, um, the pandemic opened a lot of doors with telemedicine and the ability to prescribe controlled substances uh, via telemedicine has really changed for psychiatry, but really society's, very recent, I believe, um, willingness to talk about mental health and, and champion mental health. And everybody's now comfortable with getting treated for your mental health um, frustration. So I, I just feel like it's a good time to be, to be in a mental health business. We're still going to continue physical therapy. We still do a lot of consulting. Um, but we're truly deeply invested um, into um, mental health. So... Would you say that professionally you're happy? Yeah. Have you always been? You seem like you're a low-stress guy. It's all just happy and fun. Yeah. Yes. Low stress. Yeah, low stress, happy, fun. Not every day is chocolate-covered strawberries and champagne, but um, for the most part, I really, really like what I do, and I love going to work and um, have amazing people in, in all of our facets of our business, and, yeah, I, I really enjoy what I do. And it's part of uh, part of the one of the business strategies that I that I did. I I founded Rehab Authority and I grew it to a pretty cool company and sold it. And I always titled myself the CEO, even though I never really considered myself CEO capable. And um, when I started this new company, US Healthcare Partners, and I had four uh, medical practices that weren't doing well, and I didn't have the answers. And I realized that. Family medicine is not physical therapy. Physical therapy is much less complicated than family medicine. Um, labs, um, blood draws, right? All these blood tests and, and lab tests that you can get. I knew nothing about that, and it really frustrated me. So um, this is when I stopped being CEO. I brought on two, brought on a CEO, 
um, to truly uh, run the company and brought on a COO to handle the medical practices. And so I could focus on business development, growing the company and truly trying to grow this mental health um, business. And that's when I, I, I turned over the CEO role and accepted the business development role to just try to, to grow practices. I do really well with partners, building trust and, and, and growing clinics and uh, much less interested in the finances. It's a big part of being a CEO is being in control of the CFO. <laughs> uh, and I just, I've just never really been interested in that. So I uh, hired a wonderful uh, CEO, Greg Feltenberger, who was the CEO of Idaho Urologic Institute here in town for about seven years. And then he said, Lana's our COO at Idaho Urologic. She also runs Idaho Urologic Surgery Center. It was, I think it was called the Idaho Surgery Center. I don't know, something like that. So he, we stole her as well. So Greg and Lana, um, uh, Greg's the CEO and Lana handles all the medical stuff and including the surgery centers. And uh, I think I have a pretty cool team in place now to, to help me do what I really like to do, which is business development. And um, what I've really been immersed in is, is in the mental health part of our company. That's fascinating. You have a really cool story, a lot of really interesting stuff here. And it's, uh, I, how are we doing on time? I mean, I just. Oh, it's <laughs> a lot of time. Have a time. Yeah, yeah. Limit. So, so it's, 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 it's a pretty dumb business if you think about it. And I, I speak to the College of Idaho uh, quite a bit. I help, uh, I'm, I, I guess I'm guest faculty over there, but I tr- talk to the business management students and I'm, I've been talking to them for like 12 years. And so I, was, I walked them through this rehab authority journey. And now I've been walking them through this, this journey. I have at U.S. Healthcare Partners. And I, I equate what I did at U.S. Healthcare Partners to the food industry, which a lot of people understand. And if, if you were going to tell somebody that you were going to open up uh, you know, a fast food joint, they would think you were ridiculous anyway. But if, if you told them, uh, you know, I did a McDonald's. I opened a McDonald's and then I opened an Arby's. And, you know, I also have a, a, a pizza place over here. And then, oh, yeah, I also have a Ruth's Chris. I mean, how ridiculous is that to sort of try to run all these different kinds of food shops? Oh, and I got a cup bop on the side. <laughs> I mean, to do physical therapy and mental health and family medicine and metabolic medicine and surgery centers, um, it, it's just, it just makes no sense. But it kind of just how it evolves. It just kind of was taking things as they came. Physical therapy was the low-hanging fruit. Um, I really thought I wanted to be in family medicine, and now I know I absolutely don't want to be in family medicine. And until I brought Lana, our new COO, on board, surgery centers were never on the radar. And now I'm learning that five have opened up in this valley in the last year, and there's a couple more scheduled, and uh, they're big undertakings. Um, and, and we've added that to our, our schedule. We've Some new plastic surgeons moved to town. We're helping them with some of their stuff over um, on Eagle Road south of the freeway, the Langolds two brothers who moved here who want to do plastic surgery. Um, there's a lot of really cool things going on in medicine that I had no idea about. So I've also been very willing to, uh, I, I think I have as probably a large ego as anybody. I want to, I want to be liked and I want to be awesome and, and be cool. And, but, um, letting go of the CEO role and, and the medical operations role and really stepping back into a business development role was, uh, uh, I think a big pivot, point in our business. And I think sometimes as entrepreneurs and bosses, sometimes egos get so large, you're not able to get out of your own way. And so I'm hoping that uh, my trust is high that uh, turning over the CEO role and the operations role to uh, more qualified 
people will uh, really help us uh, grow this company to, to big levels. And your skill set really is talking to people, right? Yeah. That's building these relationships. Building trust. Yeah, yeah building trust. Yeah. So a couple of questions, Kevin. So if we were to go back and reflect at this point, if you were to speak with Kevin coming out of college at C of I or even a, another person coming out of high school or coming out of college that wants to follow in your footsteps or be an entrepreneur or start their own business, what would you say to them? Like what would be your one-hour wisdom, you know, transfer over to them? Man, what would I say to somebody who wanted to follow in my footsteps? In, in reflecting over how I got to where I am today, um, physical therapy school was could easily be considered a complete waste of time and money. Um, I never really practiced as a physical therapist, and I wasn't acad- academically driven. So it was uh, uh, possibly a terrible decision. I, it's like the movie Rudy which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I cry. I've seen it 10 times and I cry every time he gets it to play in the game, but it's absolutely ridiculous premise that he worked for years, more years than I did to go to struggle through junior college and to struggle for years to get into Notre Dame and to struggle on that football team. And I don't know, it seemed like it took him 12 years to get to that point where he could actually go in for two plays in a football game. It's totally not worth it. And, and I, a, a ridiculous premise. If somebody said, hey, you can work for 12 years for two minutes of glory, nobody would take that on. Uh, and I think that with me about physical therapy school, it was dumb. It was an absolutely terrible decision to go to physical therapy school when I didn't really want to be a physical therapist. It was just a thing, a path. This, these doors are kind of opening. Why don't you um, just walk through them? And that, that's really kind of what I did. I, I had no other thoughts or ideas. When I was a physical therapist assistant trying to get into physical therapy school, my second favorite mentor at that time, his name was Rocky, he, uh, he, said, he said, why are you working so hard to go to physical therapy school? I said, I don't know. What else am I going to do? He said, I think you should go into commercial real estate. I got a buddy who's really good at it, and I think you've got a great personality for commercial real estate. And I think you'd be much happier doing something like that uh, rather than going to physical therapy school. He could see it. But for me at that time, I felt like I've got to do this. I've got a family. I need a, I need a more solid plan than go work for this guy and completely change all my thought processes. Um, it did, in hindsight, the one thing it did for me is it offers credibility. You know, so if you're trying to make it in the, in the medical space if you have a doctorate degree in medicine that that adds some legitimacy um, that yes I, I know what I'm doing and yes I've lived in your space and yes I, I get it and uh, it adds a little bit of credibility but I don't think vital or necessary to to do what I do there's a more people are not uh, medically educated who are medical consultants most of them are business business people so I I would challenge uh, anybody who was really young to truly evaluate um, what it is they're really good at and be more willing to listen, um, you know, to, to, to great advice. Um, oftentimes we, we ask the questions, but we don't truly listen to the answers and taking time to listen to answers and ponder the reality of, 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 of what your skill set is. I think we're all often a little bit blinded to what our, our skill sets are. And, and even though people tell you, Oh my gosh, you are really great at making cookies. Yeah. It's, it's easy for me. I don't, you know, it's just cookies. 
we, we discount things that are easy for us and things that are, that come naturally to us. So uh, also if you want to be in business, uh, I believe hundred percent it's, it's risk tolerance and you really have to have low anxiety to loss. Um, I, I have low anxiety to loss as an athlete. I was very competitive as an athlete. You know, I was all state in football, baseball and basketball in high school. I, I got offered football scholarships and baseball. I never got offered a baseball scholarship. That was my favorite sport. But I got out, I ended up playing college basketball because I did not want to play college football. And for those on the podcast, I'm 6'5", 240 pounds, and I was 6'5", 230 pounds in high school. And I was uh, um, I, I could have played a lot of college football, but I, I didn't like um, the pain <laughs> that was involved with college football. So I ended up playing college basketball. It was very competitive and um, – but no anxiety for loss. I never cried over a game. Um, I always just thought I'm, I'm either winning or I'm learning. And I looked at all of those opportunities that could be perceived as a failure or a loss as simply a learning opportunity. That didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. Uh, what can we do better to make sure that that doesn't happen again? So I think uh, if people want to be in business, uh, I think a business education is 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 certainly more important um, than a you know, you know more vocational education, but also you know really assessing are you risk um, tolerant and um, are you okay with loss? It's most business people's careers are paved with terrific losses. Uh, I mean the Donald Trump story is I think that guy filed bankruptcy a dozen times. I don't know, but um, a lot of failures uh, along the path of success in business, and I think people have to be comfortable with that. And I think a lot of people think the trajectory is just very steep and a straight line, but it's really a, a very messy path to business success. And you have to be okay with that. Yeah, I would 100% agree. <laughs> Definitely. So one other thing, I mean, you being heavily involved with College of Idaho, you had this uh, this position early in life where at college you were like, well, you're kind of meh. Yeah. On college. How do you feel now with your kids? How much are you encouraging them about college? Um, what do you think the role of, of college education is now? Yeah, it's really interesting uh, that you, you would, uh, because I was not uh, prepared for or pushed or encouraged to go to college, and, and I, I, I saw what it, what it did for me, even though I was very indifferent about it, um, the, the springboards that you get from a college education the relationships that you develop, the people that you meet, I think are just important as, as the book learning. It was out, when I was in college, you had to actually go there and, and get books and articles and magazines to actually get information. Now, information is available. You don't go to college for information anymore. You go to college to learn uh, to be a critical thinker and learn to think deeply about topics and learn to have conversations. Um, I don't think you, you don't have to go to college for the information. You could Google any topic at any time and learn anything you want. Uh, you don't go to college now for that actual knowledge anymore. So I think it's shifted quite a bit. Um, my children, I have two children um, from my first marriage and, and my wife uh, has five. So we, we now co-parent seven kids, which is, which is a ton. Um, my, my stepson, we were just last week in New York. He graduated from Columbia business school, smart kid. It got into Columbia and, uh, Columbia Business School does not have any different information about business than College of Idaho has or that BSU has or that Idaho State has. But you go to Columbia because of the relationships and the people you get to meet and uh, you meet people of affluence and influence. 
And uh, Columbia has networks of alumni um, who have incredibly successful businesses who can help you along the way. And that's why you um, pay for that education um, at, at different levels. Uh, one of my favorite parenting um, memories uh, was in high school when my son came home from high school. Uh, we made it very clear to our children early on that you go to college and this is what you're going to do and you're going to this school to prepare you for college and you're going to take these tests and you're going to get good grades. Uh, that was really important to uh, their mom and I early on. And I, I remember my son was a junior in high school and he came home from, from high school and he said, we need to talk. Yeah, what are we going to talk about? He said, I learned today that uh, I don't have to go to college. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Uh, we were told today that there are other options, that I could go get a job, I could go to the military, I could go to a vocational school, learn a trade. Yeah, that's not for you. I'm just telling you, Dad, that I learned that I don't have to go to college. <laughs> True, but you're going, right? Yeah, I'm going. I just, I just, you don't have to go, Dad. There are other options. He was like he was teaching me that there are other things out there other than uh, going to school. So I was really proud that he had it ingrained in his mind that there were no other options and that uh, he was enlightening me that there, there are actually other options out there, Dad. You're so silly. Not everybody has to go to college. I also really struggled at the College of Idaho um, with the private liberal arts residential college experience, which was not new, unique Um 100 years ago or even 30 years ago, but um, it's a tough sell now to go to a small, private, liberal arts college, um, and they expect you to live on campus and learn to be a part of a community, to learn to um, be an integral part of a community, to learn to, to have adult conversations and to think critically and solve problems. Um, those are the kind of things you go to college for these days. Not, not just the information, but learn how to, um, what to do with that information and how you can um, do something productive with, with that information. And my, I love the College of Idaho, um, and I guess this is a plug for them, but they're the only uh, school in the country that requires a major in three minors to graduate. They require that you have, um, that you are exposed to the four pillars of, of education. And so you're, your major and your three minors have to be in the four pillars of education. And I can't list those four pillars off, but um, my son was a little bit misguided in college as well. He was a good student. He was a smart kid, smarter than I was, got great grades, uh, but didn't really know what he wanted to do. Uh, he did play college basketball there. And uh, his very, very last semester, he had to take a couple of computer science classes to fulfill this fourth minor, this third minor. And he's a computer programmer now. And that wasn't exposed to him till his very last semester uh, at a liberal arts college. And uh, his, he majored in uh, business management and he had a minor in mathematics, one in, in computer science and one, I think in criminology, it's pretty random stuff. But um, I think that exposure to, for kids who don't really know what they want to do, the exposure to a lot of different things can, can help open up some of those doors. You don't want to go to the college of Idaho if you know you want to be a welder. You don't want to go to the College of Idaho if you, you know you want to, uh, I don't know what another example is, but you go to the College of Idaho, a liberal arts education, if you know you want to go to grad school, it prepares you for grad school, a liberal arts education, and or you go there if you don't have any idea what you want to do, because they will expose you to 
so many different opportunities out there and it, it uh, kids will find something over the course of their time there. It's really interesting that we've had, you know, asked that question to several guests, like what they feel about education. And uh, I mean, you are very, and you know, hearing your t- point of view is, is great because it's different than a lot of other people have said, you know, a lot of, with the rising costs people have mixed emotion. Brandon and I included mixed feelings about, you know, when is the ROI worth it? Yeah. So it's, it's great to have your point of view there. My son, uh, my stepson, uh, Columbia Business School, I don't know if you've looked at that in a while, $75,000 for tuition. For a semester. Per year. Per year, okay. Still. So um, I think he told me he ended up borrowing a total of about $225,000 because you also have to live in New York City. Yeah. And they have a 700-square-foot apartment, which is lovely. It's one bedroom. The kitchen is not as big as your desk. And uh, they pay $4,300 a month. And, uh, you know, that doesn't include the tip for the doorman every year. They said that they're required. It's kind of like a cruise ship. They said that uh, around Christmas time every year, they bring you a bunch of envelopes, and you have to tip everybody in the building. And the minimums on the tip envelopes, kind of like a cruise ship where they kind of tell you you're expected Suggested. to tip this much. Uh, the minimum's two grand for tips for the people who work in the building. It's an expensive place to live. And uh, he invested in Columbia for the relationships. So I, d- I don't want to know how much he makes, but he, he'll start with a huge uh, consulting firm out of Texas called Williams uh, Paramel. I think I'm pronouncing that pretty close to correct. And they've hired him to be a consultant. He can live in New York and work remotely and he'll travel to see clients Monday through Thursday. And anyway, you get those big, cool jobs right out of Columbia Business School. You don't get those big, cool jobs right out of Boise State uh, Business School. And that's, that's what you pay for. And he now has a debt, but what is the ROI on that? And he believes, they believe that, uh, that they'll be, um, have all that um, satisfied in, in five years. Right. Contrast to, you know, Boise State, Utah State, University of Utah, BYU, all offered him um, 100% scholarship. We will pay your tuition. He was so smart. We'll pay your tuition. We'll pay your living expenses if you'll get your MBA at our school. That's how smart this kid is. And uh, he goes to Columbia, and he's very middle of the pack. He's very, very humbled to tell us that he was in the lower half of the grades uh, at at his class of 800. (laughs) 800 and uh, every year at Columbia Business School, but uh, landed an amazing job and living his dream, being in New York City. And we'll be able to pay back that student loan debt in about five years. Um, I know kids who graduate from the College of Idaho and are still paying back money after 20 years. Yeah. So I don't know. The ROI is... You, gotta, you just got to be thoughtful You got to do it. the math. Thanks for listening to the Founders Podcast. Be sure to follow the host on Twitter. Search at Jord B. Hansen and at Brandon Minot to discuss more. Also, be sure to visit thefounderspod.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content.